We're going to be in Colossians uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 18 this morning. Uh, as you guys turn there, uh, I want to kind of preface what we're going to talk about today with a warning of sorts. We've been working through Colossians, and as we've laid out, Colossians you can kind of divide into theology, where Paul sets out, here's what we believe, and then he gets into practice. And this morning, as we open up to Colossians 3.18, what we see is the application of all the theology Paul has talked about. We see him applying what it means to live every day as if Jesus is Lord. Specifically, we see that in connection with our interpersonal relationships. Those who are closest to us, those who we're interacting with on a daily basis. And I want to acknowledge that what that means is that this might be a painful message for some of you. That if you find yourself in a spot in your marriage where you're having struggles or disagreements, this might be painful. If you find yourself in a spot where as a parent, you are struggling with, say, disciplinary issues. You're struggling with your children, or maybe you are childless. This may be painful. If you are a child who finds himself in a, different, a difficult spot with his or her parents, this message may be hard. And if you are somebody who has found meaningful work, the exercise of your vocation, what you feel that God has called you to, you find that elusive or far from you. This message today might be painful. My wish is not to discourage anybody here, but merely to lay out what God's intended design is for us as we approach the relationships of husband and wife, parent and child, and employer and employee. We're going to see that right away. And so given this passage and what it has for us today, I think we should start uh, with a bit more prayer. So if you would bow with me. Father in heaven, as we have prayed several times this morning, and I pray again, that we just submit this day to you. Uh, we give you this morning, we give you our minds and our hearts right now to focus on this text. We pray that we not get lost in the cultural messages that might contradict this text. We pray that we might not get lost in our own personal circumstances which make this text difficult, but we pray that we hear your message. We hear your goodness echoing throughout these verses. So, Lord, I ask that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth might be honoring in your sight and edifying to all who gathered with us here. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, Colossians 3, starting in verse 18. Wives. Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are earthly, or those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. 
you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You see, as we get into this text, right away we find ourselves in a tenuous position. Wives, submit to your husbands. Not an easy text to handle. But this is also no mere text pulled out of context. You see, the overriding message of Scripture on this point is clear. And so in order to wrestle through what this text actually means, I think it's important that we get a broader view of the context from Colossians 1 all the way through so that we can see how Paul traces out and gets to this application that wives are to submit to their husbands, that husbands are to love to their wives, and so on. Because it really comes from the original thesis of the book, which, if you haven't been with us, we've been working through Colossians all summer. And so Colossians 1, 15 through 20, which we were in a few weeks back, gives us the starting point for getting here. Where Paul writes, he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is Paul's worshipful climax of the book of Colossians. And he builds up to it by pushing back against problematic theologies and false philosophies that the Colossians had been encountering and even believing. And he moves on from there to introduce an application of Christ's lordship, which is, in Colossians chapter 2, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so now walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith that you have been taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And as Drew preached last week, that idea gets drawn out and pictured in one single verse in Colossians 3.17, where Paul writes, And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And now as verse 18 rolls in, all Paul is doing is unpacking what it means that we would do everything. That we would do everything in the name of Lord Jesus Christ. He says, what's one of the primary places where you do something or say something? Well, it's in these particular relationships. And so he addresses marriage first. And in our passage, we see that this gives us something practical. That it gives us something to grab onto. And even that it sets in the context of all of our relationships under Jesus. Put differently... Paul is telling us that the logical entailment that Jesus is Lord is that he is Lord of all things. And if he is Lord of all things, then he is Lord over your relationships. And if he is Lord over your relationships, then here is how God intends these relationships to be engaged with, to be enacted. The long and the short of it then is this. Are we going to be, when we approach a passage like Colossians 3, are we going to be people governed through and through by the text of Scripture? Are we going to be Bible people? 
because the scriptures themselves refer to what we're looking at as sacred writings, which Second uh, Timothy 3:15-17 says, are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So are we going to let this God-breathed-out text govern how we engage in our relationships? Are we going to let it govern how we be in our marriages and how we be in parenting and in our relationship with our parents? How we act Monday through Friday at our jobs? I point all of this out not to make sure that you guys just understand the weight of what we're engaging today, but so that you guys can see that God's commands are not capricious or arbitrary. If God is good, then his commands too are good. If God is good, then what is written in these scriptures must also be good and for our joy. So, that being said, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. In our cultural moment, we find this a difficult text, and with good reason. But, I think there is some disarmament that can happen here. There are some rough edges we can knock off of this text. Now, even saying that, I should say that when we do so, we will still find that the message of this text, no matter how many rough edges we knock off it, will still be deeply offensive to our culture. But this is the overriding witness of all of Paul's letters, and in fact, all of Scripture. So Colossians 3.18 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Ephesians 5.22, repeating almost word for word, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And Paul expands on this in, in Ephesians 5 to say, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and he is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Notice the important connection here, that the wife and husband relationship is made parallel to the church-Christ relationship. I find no way around saying that if we're going to deny that wives should submit to their husbands, we must also deny then, logically, that the church has to submit to Christ. But what are we as a church if we do not submit ourselves to Christ? If Christ and his word do not govern us here, what is the point of all that we're doing? 1 Corinthians 11.3 takes a similar analogy and just adjusts the angle a little bit. Paul writes, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Paul ups the stakes here. It's not just that to reject the husband-wife relationship as laid out here is to reject Christ's church relationship, but it's also to reject Christ's God relationship. So contrary to some theologians' opinions, which disregard texts like this by pointing to their particular culture, I find no reason within the cultural frameworks of Colossians, Ephesians, and 1 Corinthians, which are diverse and varied cultures, to reject what this text so clearly teaches. It seems to me 
that the submission relationship between the wife and her husband is not grounded in the culture of the ancient world, but is rather grounded in theological relationships that are unchangeable. That God and Christ relate in the same way. That Christ and the church relate in the same way. So we should take some time to carefully consider how is this for God's glory and for our joy? And first, just to, like I said, knock off some rough edges, here's what we see. Each of the three passages I just read couches the submission language completely in marriage. What I mean by that is that women are not called in this passage nor anywhere in the scriptures to submit to men generally. There is no patriarchalism or chauvinism here. This is not men are better than women, so women must submit. Rather, this is within the confines of marriage, within the husband-wife relationship, there is submission. One commentator puts it this way, women who were single, widowed, divorced, and of independent means could evidently, on the basis of these passages, be the heads of their own home. This is the case with Lydia in Acts chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. This is the case with Phoebe, the first named deacon in Christian history and the patron of the church in Romans 16, 1 and 2. This is the case of Chloe in 1 Corinthians 11, or 1, 11. And presumably with Nympha, who will be mentioned next week, in Colossians 4, 15. So what we see here is that this text deals with the relationship under a roof, with the relationship in a household, not with the relationship in culture or the world at large. It is not that women submit to men, it is that wives submit to their, not anyone else's, but to their husbands. Furthermore, we can say that this should not be seen as demeaning to a wife. The, the theological position that I'm describing here is technically called complementarianism. And it are, is generally articulated this way. That man and woman were created ontologically equal. Ontologically means in your being or essence, which means at the core of who you are, what Genesis 1 and 2 refers to as the image of God, the core of who you are, that is the same for men and women. They are equal on that plane. However, created ontologically equal, we, men and women, were created teleologically different. Teleology refers to someone's purpose or the intended design which something has. And we can see this actually in just who men and women are. Think about as this is laid out in the first three chapters of Genesis. In Genesis 1, starting in verse 26, we see God deciding to make humanity. And the text says, so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created so God creates men and women as one, ontologically equal in the image of God. The text goes on to say that God blessed them, and he said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we've noticed the equality here, but let's not realize the difference. Let's not realize the distinction. To the Hebrew culture, naming is of utmost importance. You can think to maybe some studies you've done through the book of Genesis or through some readings where people's names have been changed to show how God has 
called them out of one future into a different future. Thus, Abram becomes Abraham. Thus, Jacob becomes Israel. And so in the naming and the renaming, we see purpose. And notice what's taking place here. Man and woman, both called Adam. Man. And so we see already some aspect of male headship in the marital relationship of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Genesis 2 gives us a more full picture of this, saying that man was created in verse 15, that the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So man, who will become a husband, is given a particular job, work and keep or protect the garden. In other words, we would say, cause it to flourish, cultivate the garden. And then we're told later in the chapter that it is not good that man should be alone. Thus God makes a helper fit for man. And it summarizes it this way. But Adam, there was not a helper found for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The rib that the Lord God had taken from man... He made into woman and brought her to man. Here we find the rationale is both teleological, it is within purpose, but also notice the equality again. Woman was not taken from the leg of man, symbolizing submissive or symbolizing uh, subversion or being under one. And if she wasn't taken from the head, being over or in charge, rather she was taken from the side, someone of equal value. Genesis 3, we could close off this little study by pointing out that in Genesis 3, when God curses man and woman after the fall, after sin has entered the world, he targets specifically the purpose for which he designed each of them for. And so Genesis 3, starting in verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Think about the relationship between man and woman that we've looked at so far. They are called to be fruitful and multiply. Not to limit it to any one thing, but if you were to look at or to think about what the most prevalent role of fruitful and multiply would be for women, would it be anything other than childbearing? That sets her apart from men in ways that define everything from biology all the way through how most cultures for most of history have structured the male-female relationship. Furthermore, you see that she was created in Genesis 2 as a helper fit for me. But what happens here? Your desire will be to rule over me. No longer a helper, but somebody who actually tries to get man to submit to her. Adam, likewise, was created to work the garden, remember? Well, what's his curse? Thorns and thistles the ground shall break forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall, you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. And so we see that while it was once work and labor, words that are used to describe effort and efficiency and production is now toil, which is a word that describes inefficiency, futility, and ultimately, ultimately we see here described is this idea that man is unable to do what he was called and designed for. 
And so what we see from the first three chapters of Genesis then is that man and woman are created ontologically equal. They are equal in essence and being, and we would say today, personhood. There is nothing that makes a woman less than a man. But in their creation, they were not created to do equal things. Rather, they were created with specific design purposes, which set us apart. I know given the countercultural nature of this concept, that this may be, there still may be some hesitation about it, or even outright pushback. So let me just again clarify. My point here is that this position is not to demean women. It is not to demean wives. And my primary evidence for that would be no one other than Jesus himself. For it is Jesus who takes the submission relationship on, to, on when it comes between him and God. And I do not think that we can say that that relationship between Jesus and his Father is one which demeans Christ. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, where this relationship is fleshed out again. Paul, asking us, commanding us to take on a posture of humility, writes the following. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind amongst yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on himself the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Paul right here in these couple of verses says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, meaning that he was equal with God the Father and God the Spirit, he was equal to them in his ontology, willingly submitted himself to the will of God, Becoming a servant. Kathy Keller, the wife of well-known author and retired pastor Tim Keller, co-authored with her husband a book titled Meaning of Marriage. And in that book, she writes this about this passage. If it was not an insult on the dignity and divinity, but rather led to greater glory of the second person of the Godhead to submit himself and assume the role of a servant, how could it possibly injure me to be asked to play out the Jesus role in my marriage? How can it ever be demeaned to be asked to imitate Christ? And so I want to just be clear. That is not what we're saying when we see the scriptures say, wives submit to your husbands. There's nothing intended to be demeaning here. And finally, I want to point out one more rough edge we can knock off, and that's that this passage and passages like these should never be used to advocate anything close to what would become a sub subjugation or an abusive relationship. To do so with these texts would be to misuse them in the most egregious way possible, and we'll see that as we unpack the rest and what specifically husbands call to. I believe what Paul is getting at here is that he simply wants to communicate that an intentional decision must be made by the wife to submit herself to her husband in order for this entire thing to function properly. And I draw that from the specific grammar of the text itself. You see, our passage, interestingly enough, contrary to what will be done grammatically in the rest of the passage we're going to look at this morning, avoids using the imperative. That's the technical way to say that, which means when Paul says, wives submit to your husbands, he issues no command. When he says, husbands love your wives, he'll issue a command. When he says, parents obey your children, or children <laughs> obey your parents, switch 
that one from that. When he says, children obey your parents, he issues a command. When he says, wives submit to your husbands, he avoids using a command. And in fact, he uses, to use the technical grammatical language, the middle tense, which means a way to translate this passage is to say, wives, choose to submit yourselves to your husbands. Which, by the way, takes away any effort from an abusive husband or an abusive partner to force submission upon someone. That falls outside of anything anybody could legitimately do with this text. One commentator, when referring to this, says, the wife's submission is never to be forced on her by a demanding husband. It rather is the deference that a loving wife, conscious that her home requires a head, gladly shows to a worthy and devoted husband. And so, having knocked off some of the rough edges of what submission does not mean, let's answer the question, what then does it mean? And here I think we're still in hot water when it comes to our culture. But again, are we going to be people of the scriptures? Are we going to be people governed through and through by the Bible? It's interesting to me that the singular duty of the wife is an attitude or disposition that she must take. And that attitude or disposition is one that recognizes appropriate authority. In other words, a wife lays down her will and takes second place to her husband, foregoing demanding that which she would desire. And she does so imitating Christ. Now, just to put one passage in your mind for what Christ's submission to his Father looked like. Think about Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. Going a little bit farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. In verse 42, a second time he went away and prayed, Father, if this... If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Notice then that a wife's submission, if it is to parallel Christ's submission here, does not mean that she not voice her desires. It does not mean that she not voice what she thinks is best. Rather, it means in being honest and open with her spouse, she understands that when it's one versus one, there has to be a tiebreaker somewhere. And that tiebreaker comes with Christ to the Father, Christ submitting himself to the Father's will. The same thing that we're told should be true between a husband and wife, that the wife submits to the husband's will. I understand that might make a lot of people uncomfortable, so let's quickly turn to what the husband is called to do. Because I believe the next verse shows us how the husband is not necessarily to earn this type of submission from his wife, but how this husband is to make such submission a joyful pleasure to give. So, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. At first glance, this seems simple enough, but if we unpack it, we'll see that each of these phrases, love your wives, do not be harsh have massive amounts of biblical witness behind them to fill out what is taking place here. So starting with love your wives, we do see that this is an imperative. This is a command. 
which already runs counter to our entire culture's way of describing the word love. To our culture, to command somebody to love doesn't even enter into a realm of being thought about. Because love is something guided by emotion and passion. It's free-spirited. You can't command that. But biblically speaking, if you unpack what the Bible means when it talks about love, it talks about something that flows, yes, from the emotions, yes, from passion, but also, and more primarily, from the will. Meaning, you choose to love everyone that you love. You do not love somebody without the intentional desire from your heart to set love upon them. And so if love can be chosen, then love can be commanded. And that's what's taking place here. Paul commands husbands to love their wives, to, in effect, choose to love your wife. So the source of love seems to be different in this passage than our culture, but also the nature of love. What do we mean when we talk about love in our culture? We might have images of romantic comedies and pretty and pink. We might have, as one pastor once said, the confusion that we can love our wives and love our children and also love tacos, which just doesn't seem to mean the same thing in those contexts. So what do we mean? Well, Ephesians 5 is again helpful because Ephesians 5 unpacks further what Paul means when he says that we are to agape or love our wives. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives half, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In this same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. Rhetorical question, how much did Christ love the church? The answer can only be that Christ loved the church enough to die for her. But maybe more, he loved her enough to live for her. Most theologians believe Jesus lived somewhere around 33 years, which means he lived 12,045 days of sinlessness for the church, his bride. Which means he lived 289,080 hours obeying God's every command, for his breath. Which means he lived 17,344,800 minutes of righteousness and obedience to God. Which means he lived 1,040,688,000 seconds loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength for his breath. That is what Paul means when he says, Husbands, love your wives. And that doesn't even take into account, by the way, the fact that there was a time period in all of that in which Christ did that whilst being tempted firsthand in person by the deceiver, the enemy, Satan himself. Doesn't that sound tiring? But what about his death? 
In the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ experienced stress and anxiety so intense when he thought about what he would do for his bride. But medically speaking, the capillaries in his forehead first leaking blood into his sweat land so that Christ literally sweat blood thinking about what was coming. And then he was betrayed by his closest friend. And then he was arrested, he was beaten, he was scourged, took on 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails onto his back. Then they placed a dirty and bloody wooden crossbar on that raw back and he walked it to the place of his own unrighteous execution. Three nails, one through each wrist with no particular precision put for painlessness, placed right between the ulna and radius to hold them in place, and one through both of his feet, highly sensitive and nerve-ending rich areas of the human body. The jerk of the cross fell into the hole that would hold it in place, most likely dislocating one, if not both, of his shoulders. And then several hours on the cross, hanging and struggling to breathe, whilst his lungs filled with fluid and the weight of his body pressed all the air out of him so that he would suffocate and only would get relief from the feeling that he could not breathe when he leveraged the weight of his body on those nails between his wrists. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. We should not take such a short sentence so lightly. If you want to revisit the topic of submission, now would be a good time. The wife does not pay submission because her husband forces it upon her, but because her husband will go through life and endure death to love her. How could that be anything but joy? Is there a woman, in fact, in here who would hesitate to give submission to someone who would love them as Christ loved the church? think that this next part goes without saying, but husbands, do not be harsh with them. I wonder, based off of study, if this phrase might have come from a particular issue that the Colossian church had, that, that husbands had a tendency to harshness. But even if it's cultural, and even if it's something that particularly they struggled with, notice how practical this is. Any one of us in here understands the pain which bitterness can wreck, and how easily it creeps into a relationship. After a little bit of time, you can even find that bitterness justifies its own place in your heart against your spouse. And then all it takes is for a wife to disappoint. Maybe in small ways, household chores, the dishes, kids, maybe in big ways. Wife's ability didn't match the husband's ambition. Wife's sexual availability didn't match what the husband thought he was signing up for. Husband's ideal picture of a wife doesn't live up to the 24-7 reality of what his wife actually is. 
And then all it takes is one long or hard day of work, one struggle with an obstinate child, or even something as simple as the car breaking down. And it all sets the stage for tiredness and ill temper to be expressed lightning quick with harsh words. So husbands, do not be harsh with your wives. We can flip the negative command on its head and look at it positively from 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Since they, here's the ontologically equal part again, are heirs with you of the grace of life. And so that your prayers may not be now, I'm not even sure how long I've been talking because I have a terrible sense of time when people are staring at me. <laughs> so let me just point out for those of you who are single in the room who have been listening for a long period of time thinking, super glad I came to church on this day. <laughs> this passage actually has a ton of freight for how singles should position and act already. You see, I think it's fair to draw from Colossians 3, 18 and 19 this concept. Singles, if you desire to be married, seek to embody characteristics of willing and joyful submission and of Christ-like love now so that you can prepare for the marriage. More to the point, if you do not think you are ready for what I just said, you are not ready for marriage. If you are not ready to submit to a husband who will love you as Christ loves the church, then do not say yes when he gets down on the knee. And don't you dare think that you're ready to get down on the knee and pop the question if you are not ready to live for and die for the woman you are asking that question to. Even in a passage about marriage, we can see that it prepares us for the life that singles might have ahead. Now, I expect at this point there may be some pushback. I mean, the rationale might be simple. Well, sure, that's easy for you to say, Tyler, but if you knew my wife, if you knew my husband, if you know how things were in my home, I simply and humbly submit that it strikes me that this passage lacks any apparent rationale that a husband or wife's actions is premised upon his or her spouse's adherence and obedience to these things. In other words, what Paul does not say is, wives, submit to your already Christ-like husbands. Husbands, love your ever-so-submissive wives. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them, regardless of whether they submit to you. And wives, submit to your husbands, even when they fail to love you well. Even when they fail to love you as Christ loved the church. Peter writes... Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without the word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. 
say that here, both to dispel the uh, defendant lawyer in your mind, but also to preface the section we're about to head into. You see, not only should husbands and wives view each other that way, but parents and children need to prepare themselves as well. We could similarly say that we should keep in mind when we turn to the children and father section next, what we are about to read in the child-father dynamic is not depending on any mutual adherence or agreement or reciprocation of obedience and non-harshness. All these commands are hung not on the actions of any individual person we have an interpersonal relationship with. They are hung, as I said at the beginning, on the Lordship of Christ. In other words, outside of any abuse, a wife's failure to submit to her husband, a husband's failure to love his wife, a child's failure to obey his parents, and a father's failure to not provoke his rebellious child are signs of rebellions in their own hearts. When I am harsh with my wife and fail to love her, it is me rejecting the sovereignty and lordship of Christ over me. It is a theological error as much as it is a miracle. So, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Being a nerd about words, I think it's super interesting here that the Greek word obey means listen under. Which makes sense, actually, because if you've ever had to tell a child to obey you, really what you probably actually want is for them to listen to you. Uh, so you hear parents say things like, put your listening ears on, or are you even listening to me? You see, obedience is fundamentally about listening and then acting under submission to someone. That's what obedience is about. In addition, we should take note when the child is told to obey, we should think of the expansiveness of the command, which is super fascinating, because I think Paul, and more primarily the Holy Spirit who was writing through Paul, knew how we would react to such things. You see, if the text just said, children obey your parents, full stop, what would each and every one of us who has at some point been a child or a parent we didn't want to obey do? We'd look for loopholes. We'd look for the way out. We'd look for the realm where submission is no longer necessary. We'd find our reason and our rationale for why I don't have to obey that command. The theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, you can see this pretty easily when you think of the child who's told to go to bed. And then he thinks in his head, my father wants me to go to bed because he wants me to be well-rested and energetic for tomorrow. What he doesn't know is that I will fall asleep faster if I play a little bit longer. And so rather than going to bed, I will stay up and play. No, that's not what the father wants. What the father wants is for you to go to bed and obey. But there's a rationale there, which is why Paul, in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, writes, Obey your parents in everything. And I know, I don't know what it is like to be a child to your dad or mom. Maybe true. 
But like I said a minute ago, these relationships are not hinged upon reciprocation of the parties involved, but on the Lordship of Jesus. So I don't know what it's like to be a child of your dad or mom, but is Jesus Lord? Do you want to please him, as the text says? But my parents aren't Christians. Then by all means, when they contradict God, feel free to disobey. Until that point, obey your parents. And when I say that, when Paul wrote this, I don't think he has in mind, by the way, subjective interpretations of what we've been called to. When he says obey in everything, because Christ is Lord, what he has in mind is the scriptures. He means the commands and the callings and the convictions found in them. When they violate those, by all means disobey. Until that point, obedience is a thing to be paid. And fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. In all honesty, this command breaks my heart. I don't know if it's because I can actually conjure easier than the other parts of the scriptures what it looks like when somebody's discouraged. See, you might even be able to draw the same mental image to mind. Discouragement has a posture, doesn't it? Shoulders bent in, head down. Discouragement has a feeling. It's like struggling in quicksand. Everything becomes harder and everything becomes heavier and the simplest tasks become ornate. I think discouragement often has a place too. You find discouraged people residing in corners and in the back, out of the way. Just not wanting to get in anybody else's business. Just wanting to be left alone. For a little while. Dads, when you think about your kids, your sons and your daughters, what do you want for them? What sort of future do you want there to be for them? My guess is instantaneously you can draw some picture to mind that has nothing to do with discouragement. You could. You wish remove every obstacle, every discouragement from their path. And yet we live in a world that is discouraging enough. My children and yours, whether you have them now or will have them in the future, will meet enough obstacles and enough discouragements in this world if we fathers are not contributing. So let us then hear this passage and decide now that our arms and our words will be a place of refuge from discouragement rather than a source of discouragement. Let us decide that when our children come to us, what they will find is refreshment and rejuvenation for the battle they will return to face in the external world. And so, let us decide now that we will not provoke, 
which by the way, fathers, means you need to prepare now for the disobedient, sinful heart of your children. Because they are not perfect angels. They are sinful from their mother's womb. And yet, we are still called to not provoke, lest they be discouraged. But my kids drive me crazy. So do mine. But Christ is Lord. But my kids won't obey. Understood. How has God the Father responded to your disobedience? Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means clear the guilty. Maybe this part for me is painful because I know I have much work to do here. Thankfully, my children are still young and have much time in my household, so I will have much practice when it comes to this command. And as if Paul and the Holy Spirit knew what 21st century would bring us, concludes in nearly as controversial as a manner as he began. Servants and masters. We may be tempted to skip over this portion and thinking, oh, I don't want to touch that right now. And a day when they're getting rid of master's degrees just because of the name? I don't know. But if we skipped over this, we would be doing a disservice to the scriptures and we would be giving into a lie that the scriptures actually might support something which is fundamentally against the very heart of God. And so let me clarify that Paul, when he addresses masters and servants, by no means supports the institutions of slavery or a heart of racism which have been common in American history. First, let me point this out. That contrary to some of the critics of the Bible, this actually is not even a reference to what was practiced in early American history called chattel slavery. The master-servant relationship Paul is referring to here does not actually play with race or ethnicity at all. It had far more to do with economics. And, on top of that, Paul is quite clearly against this institution. In fact, in a letter that many commentators pair with the book of Colossians, because it is written to a member of the Colossian church, the book of Philemon, the issue of slavery is addressed when Paul, talking to Philemon about a runaway slave he owned named Onesimus, writes the following. You now have him back forever. Does he embrace slavery? No, listen to the rest. No longer as a bondservant, but much more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. He is one especially to me, but much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me, Paul, 
if you consider me a partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, as if he thought anybody else was at play here, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your own me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. I am confident of your obedience to this, and I write you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Quite honestly, if I was Philemon, I'd feel a little bit backed into a corner by this. But notice how Paul leverages the freedom of omniscience against both Paul's own account and against the clear teaching of Scripture that we who are in Christ are brothers and sisters. Paul is unequivocal in being anti-slavery in 1 Corinthians 7.21. Paul writes, Were you bondservants when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of an opportunity, for he who called you in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man in the Lord. And in 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, listen to how Paul couches enslavers in a list of other sins. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly, for the sinner, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers and murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, enslavers... Liars, perjurers, and get this, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, the clear implication is enslaving someone is contrary to sound doctrine. So we have then primarily an economic arrangement disconnected from race and ethnicity, connected to debt usually. And thus, what we can then draw from the master-servant relationship is not only that the Bible is adamantly anti-slavery, but that this passage might actually have something to say for us as employers or employees. You see, if we reverse that, then we might, or if we replace those words, we might then read the text this way. Employees, obey in everything your employers and supervisors, not merely in external obedience, simply trying to please them on some surface level, but sincerely, from the heart, do your work. For it is done truly in honor of God, who is your true supervisor and who providentially has placed you in your job. Employers, do not be harsh or uncaring, but treat your employees justly and fairly, for you too are someone under the authority of the all-seeing eyes of God. So we've reached the end of our passage. And if I can summarize and give us three things to walk away with, I would say this. I want to remind us that our actions, attitudes, and dispositions flow not from what the people around us do, but they are to flow from the Lordship of Christ. Husbands love their wives because Christ is Lord. Wives submit their husbands because Christ is Lord. Parents are not harsh with their children because Christ is Lord, and children are obedient to their parents because Christ is Lord. Employees are respectful and hard workers because Christ is Lord, and employers are caring and compassionate to their employees because Christ is Lord. 
challenge us then to find time today, given what this relates to, and given how easily it would be to take the rest of the day and not think about this passage, I want to challenge us to reflect and find time to repent, both to God, but also to the particular people involved, to your family, to your wife or husband, to your children or to your parents, of where you have fallen short of these. It'd be so easy to walk out and think, I just need to change. I'll try and be obedient. So much more powerful to immediately apply this text and think of where can I find a place for repentance? Because I know none of us in here have done this perfectly. And then we might consider ways that we might, in the power of the Holy Spirit, live more faithfully in line with this text. And lastly, I want to encourage us to think of ways in your interpersonal relationships where you can live out this text. Practically, husbands, how can you love your wife? Well, no more generalities, but your marriage. How can you love your wife? Well, wives, where can you submit to your husbands? Children, what are your parents asking you to be obedient in right now? Fathers, how in what happens today can you choose not to be harsh with your children? Employees, how can we promote justice and fairness among our supervisors in our workplaces? And employers, how can we establish working conditions for you and for those who work for you such that they can work for you as they would compare to work for the world? Let's pray.